in our culture, what is it that makes us happy? We see and hear of a lot of different things. We hear that it's money, wealth, prestige, fame, position, success, climbing the ladder of success, as it were, power, satisfying our desires, love, acceptance, security, leisure, retirement, even the weekend, right? Working for the weekend. Happiness. We listen to how some, and I put in quotes, experts define happiness. The ancient Greeks define happiness as happiness is the joy that we feel when we're striving after our potential. Here's a good one. Shirley MacLaine, expert, right? Academy Award winner said, to be happy, you have to be willing to be compliant with not knowing. Hmm. Mastin Kipp, the founder of DailyLove.com, said, I don't expect to always be happy. I simply accept what is. And that acceptance is key. This is what self-love is all about. Really, acceptance and the ability to love yourself right where you are. Aristotle said, happiness is a state of activity. Eleanor Roosevelt said, someone once asked me what I regarded as the three most important requirements for happiness. My answer was, a feeling that you have been honest with yourself and those around you, a feeling that you have done the best you could, both in your work and the ability to love others. Happiness, in many ways, from the world's perspective, revolves around our circumstances, doesn't it? About good things and about bad things. When bad things are happening, we want to run from that and get away from that and try to turn it into something positive, right? Something good. The title of the message this morning is, Are You and I Truly Happy? We're going to look at biblically What does that look like? Would you turn again to Matthew chapter 5? I would ask you, we read this, Pastor Mike read this earlier, but would you please uh, stand with me as we read the first 12 verses again just to bring our attention to these truths. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, when, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated. Father, we come to you this morning to look into your word. Lord, to hear your truth. Lord, the reality there are so many things that can be studied or looked at that can be of value to us. But Lord, these things in your word are precious. Lord, may we see, may our eyes be open to what it means to be truly happy, to be blessed. And Father, I pray that everything that's said this morning would be honoring and pleasing to you. Father, if things are not said in an adequate or in the right way, may it quickly be forgotten, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look a little deeper into these first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, we're hearing here from not a teacher, the teacher. All right, I know 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is true. But here we are talking about our the infinite God-man, the one who dwelt with mankind here on earth. I think it's so important to see and to hear and to listen to what he had to say. Our Savior, our Lord, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. In my study and reading this past week of these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, and again, we're going to go through this very quickly. There, is so, there, there are messages, countless messages that can be on each one of these Beatitudes. But as I read through, and I would encourage you to read through the Sermon on the Mount, it is convicting. It is extremely challenging. And I would say impossible, apart from God's grace and God's mercy. Think of the Jews hearing what Jesus said in verse 20 of chapter 5. For I tell you... Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not the best of news for them. But how about for everyone else, including us? (laughs) Matthew 5, 28. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa. Challenging. The teacher tells the crowds... And I would contend, you and me, blessed are you who possess these qualities, the Beatitudes. It is so paradoxical, is it not? How can these things, these qualities, bring happiness? That seems crazy. Poor in spirit, mourning. Meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure, peacemaker, persecutions. Are you kidding me? That's to bring us blessedness? From the world's perspective, that's crazy. That's kind of the point, isn't it? 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness to him. This is foolishness. The things that I said at the beginning, that's what brings you happiness. This, that's foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Here's the key. But we have the mind of Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the studies in the Sermon on the Mount, made five points about these truths. And I think they are worth me... It's worth me articulating to you and for you hearing. Number one, it's a portrait of all Christians. Number two, we are to manifest all these characteristics. Kind of like the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's singular, it's not plural. You don't, hey, I have love, joy, yeah, I have this and that. No, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the package deal, right? Number three, none of these descriptions refer to what we may call natural tendencies. We know people who are peacemakers. They never want to have an argument, you know. Or we know people who are meek, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about natural tendency. Number four, represents the essential utter difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. And number five, the Christian and the non-Christian belong to two entirely different realms. That is true. The question, is the teacher talking about you and me? This isn't meant to be questioning or causing us to question our faith. But let's be biblical. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test? Let's look a little deeper in to these 12 verses. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up, on the mountain. The crowds, why were they gathering? Well, we can look at what was the attraction? What was the attraction of all these people coming around? Well, we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, people were bringing sick people. They were bringing oppressed people. And what was happening? They were being healed. The crowds were gathering. It goes on to say, and when he sat down... His disciples came to him. This is what Jewish rabbis did. They would sit and teach. They would stand and proclaim the word of God, the scriptures, but they would sit and teach. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and stood and read it. He rolled it back up, set it down, sat, and began to teach. It's exactly what our Lord 
is doing here. In verse 2, he said, He opened his mouth and taught them. Why would that be there? Of course, you open your mouth, you speak, you teach, right? But this was a common colloquialism. It was used to introduce a message that was very important and significant. I would contend, obviously, for the crowds and the disciples, but I would contend for you and for me as well. Over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, the phraseology of God said, or thus says the Lord, prophets would say, thus says the Lord. Again, the authority, right? Authenticating the authority. This is what God says. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Verse 3 starts out blessed. The idea here is fortunate, blissful, happy. It's a deep-seated joy, deep-seated joy and contentment in God. I love John Piper's phrase. I think about it and I say it often, finding our joy and our satisfaction in God. I don't always do that. I need to be reminded of that. Finding my joy and my satisfaction in God. It says happy. It says, happy are the poor in spirit who mourn and meek or hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted. Remember, that's all crazy talk to an unregenerate heart. The natural man, those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Truth. He continues on in verse 3, blessed be happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. We're not talking about poverty, wealth, not having it. We're talking about an inward poverty. Spiritual poverty. The opposite of self-righteousness. Appreciating the depth of one's own spiritual need. Were you experiencing that this morning as we thought about communion? I'm helpless. I, in and of myself, am hopeless. It's hopeless. Having no ability in themselves to please the righteous, holy God of all creation. For this reason, having complete dependence on God to meet their need. Psalm 34, 18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we see a contrast of someone who is self-righteous with one who is Poor in spirit in the parable. Let me just read it to you. You can turn there if you'd like, but it's Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but let me just read it to you. And here, in essence, we see the beginning of happiness. He also told this parable to some who trusted in 
themselves. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eye to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable represents a miracle of change of heart, right? Of God's grace, of God's mercy. The blind beginning to see. The dark, walking in darkness now beginning to walk in light. A heart of stone turning to a heart of flesh. A new creation. God took the blinders off the tax collector to see his desperate, desperate need. (laughs) Poor in spirit. In inward poverty. We know that from what Paul teaches in Romans. Paul tells of the tax collector's heart condition. And hours prior to being redeemed. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The blinders of the natural man come off. The miracle, right? To be able to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what is the result? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Matthew 11.28, Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The idea here is giving up our kingdom. We ultimately inherit God's kingdom. What is this kingdom of heaven? I don't believe here we're necessarily talking primarily about a place. We're talking about the sovereign rule of God in our hearts. It will be a literal place in the new heavens and the new earth, right? But theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. We see this all throughout Scripture, this idea of already, not yet. 
Right? Pastor Jason talks about this all the time. We've been saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. Right? There is the kingdom of heaven. His rule and his reign. But you will be in his kingdom in heaven. Verse 4, blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's literally like mourning for the dead, grieving. Why is one who is poor in spirit mourning? In their desperation, they see their sin. Right? How does mourning and blessed and happy, how do those go together? It's God's response, is it not? Repentance, forgiveness. The beginning of his ministry, just a few verses prior to the start of Matthew 5, Jesus said, from that time Jesus began, Matthew said, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get an idea of this grieving and repentance biblically. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, not just about the grieving, but because you grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Yeah, I'm grieving. I'm grieving because I got caught. Not because I'm repenting and I'm sorry for my sin. Repenting is a U-turn, right? Going in this direction, I turn around and go back in the opposite direction. Repenting of my sins. Teacher tells us, for you shall be comforted. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Blessed, happy, verse 5, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Again, paradoxical, right? Wouldn't you think inheriting the earth is somebody strong, aggressive, a fighter? (laughs) Somewhat like we see in the Old Testament oftentimes, right? But here we're talking about someone who's gentle, humble. That would not have been what the Jews were expecting, right? The coming Messiah, ushering in the kingdom. With meekness? (laughs) No. We want to destroy. We want to rule and reign right here and now. Usher in the kingdom now. Meekness. It's a true view of ourself spiritually. This can happen only when we are poor in spirit. My helpless state. I see my helpless state. I'm mourning over my sinfulness, breaking down all pride, not concerned about my self-interests. A meek person is completely satisfied in God's work and his promises. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 6.10 says. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, 
yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. The meek person understands, gang, we have it all. (laughs) There's nothing to be uptight about. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fret. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And here it is. We have everything we need. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. Meekness, just gentle, right? God's taking care of all of it. And in 2 Timothy 2.12, he says, If we endure, we also reign with him, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6 says, Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Have you ever really, truly been hungry or thirsty? Personally, I've never really, really been hungry. I mean, I've been hungry where my stomach's growling and I really want to eat something. But I don't mean, I don't think I've ever really, really, really been hungry. But I have really been thirsty. Now, I didn't say really, really thirsty. I said really thirsty. You know when you pop open that cold water and you begin to drink and you guzzle it and you almost have to be careful not to choke on it because it's going in so fast and you're, you're drinking it and it's coming down the side of your face but oh, it's so soothing, right? That's really extreme when we think about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? From the world's perspective, that would be crazy talk. Why would it be crazy talk? Because Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, filthy rags. (laughs) We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. Anyone who dies without being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his imputed righteousness, is completely lost. That's what the scriptures teach. Happy are those who have been redeemed. We have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and therefore now have a healthy, spiritual appetite for righteousness. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's the regenerate man. The unregenerate man, that's crazy talk. We're hungering and thirsting for a lot of things, but it's not righteousness. We now have a desire for personal righteousness. Why? Because you and I now have, as followers of Christ, the mind of Christ. Matthew 5, verse 7 says, Blessed or happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why? 
Why do they receive mercy? Do they receive mercy because they keep being merciful? Hey, I'm going to be merciful, I'm going to be merciful. Hey, then therefore I'm going to be shown mercy. That sounds kind of like a work of mercy, right? Keep being merciful and merciful and merciful. And so God has to be merciful to me. No, we're merciful because they have already obtained mercy. They're regenerated, right? Therefore we are merciful. We are not truly merciful by nature. Those who are poor in spirit realize the need for mercy and are then led to show mercy to others. It begins at regeneration. Luke 18, 13, in the parable about the tax collector, he was able to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So now I, in turn, can be merciful to others. Verse 8 says, Blessed or happy are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Those who mourn over their sin. If you mourn over your sin, that's not sitting in a corner wallowing around about it. Woe is me. We're truly mourning over our sin. Someone who is pure in heart, for then they shall see God. They want to kill that sin. They want to put that sin to death. They do not want that sin to continue to reign. They do want to flee from that sin. They want to be like David with Potiphar's wife. Run from sin. That attitude leads to a pure heart. James 4, 8 through 10 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. And you will see God. Ultimately, but I also think this is already not yet. Getting a deeper understanding and a glimpse of God because we hate sin and we're running from it. We're we're killing it. We're not letting it rain. We're putting it to death. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, Blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who are meek are peacemakers. What, is a, what, what a shock that would have been again to the Jews, expecting the Messiah and His kingdom birthed by force. Peace? Ushering in the kingdom? A peacemaker seeks peace. They're not argumentative. They're concerned about others being at peace with God, ultimately. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Happy, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of Almighty God. In verse 10, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 2 Timothy 3.12 encapsulates this, gives the answer as to why. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) Simple, right? Again, happy are those who are poor in spirit, mourning or meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. Again, that's not normal. That's kingdom language. That's the realm of the Christian is so different from the world. Such a contrast. All attention, all that attention results ultimately in persecution. You're so different. Ultimately, we don't want to hear that anymore. We don't want to see that anymore. Verse 11 and 12 says, Blessed, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, that's interesting too. Again, we talk about persecution and oftentimes there are things that happen and we say, oh, I'm Christian, I'm just being persecuted. No, you didn't make a good decision. Things are happening because these are the consequences. We're talking about against you falsely on my account, relating to the gospel, relating the truth of the gospel. We need to be careful when we're saying, oh, I'm just being persecuted, I'm a Christian. No, you're being persecuted because that was really a bad decision. You were acting wrongly. That's not right. We're talking about here about how we are interacting relating to the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes here bring us full circle with the same result. We started off with poor in spirit, complete desperation, and trust in the completed work of Jesus in grace alone, by faith alone. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom living in this world, creating distinctions, right, that the world does not like. Therefore, we experience Persecution. What's the result? But theirs is also the kingdom of heaven. I want to close with just some questions. Seven questions. And I want you to think about them for yourself. Don't be thinking about, you know, this person or that person, my wife, my husband, my mom or my dad. My answer, my own. Think about it from your perspective. And when we get done with these, I will close in prayer. Um, have Joe come up and close us in the, the final hymn. And Pastor Brett will be up here to my left um, if you have any questions or need someone to pray for you. But listen to these questions. Do you belong to this kingdom? I'm a Christian. Okay. Do you belong to this kingdom? Are you ruled by Christ? Am I ruled by Christ? 
Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Again, it's easy to answer some of those questions sometimes, but just think about your life, right? Think about your attitude. Think about how you live life, what's important to you. And again, I'm not saying that of you, I'm saying it of me as well. Are you, am I, manifesting these qualities in my daily life, in your daily life? Is it our desire? Is it our ambition to do so? I don't mean from a work standpoint, working to appease God. I hope we've gotten to the point where we know that's not happening. (laughs) But as a regenerate person, allowing the scriptures to flow through us to deal with sin now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, now, dealing with these things, our attitudes towards mercy, being meek, all the things, being a peacemaker, the things that are talked about here. Do we desire those things? Is that our ambition because we have a changed heart and we long for those things? Or are we just lazy in those things? We think, hey, you know what, I'm saved. Eh, Once saved, always saved. It's cool. No, we need to be thinking, I'm saved. I need to be this way. I need to be living the life that Christ has called me to live. Do you see that this is what you are meant to be? If you've been called by God, This is what you've meant to be. This is what you're meant to be. This is what brings you happiness. This is what brings you blessedness, blissfulness. Not that list that I gave at the beginning or some of those clown-like descriptions of what happiness is by experts. Are you truly blessed? Are you truly happy? Father God, I thank you for your patience with us, your love for us. I thank you for your precious word. Lord, it is so convicting, so challenging. But Lord, I thank you, it resonates. And I pray, Lord, these truths... For those here this morning, that these things resonate with them. Again, we know, Lord, there's elements of maturity. Lord, you know you've been so patient with me. Lord, you know I have so far to go in my relationship with you. But Lord, I pray these things are resonating with us. And we're not looking at these things like, yeah, that's what we talk about in church, but that yeah, I don't really care about that. Lord, if that be the heart of anyone here, God, the only thing I can pray is what your word tells me to pray, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would take the blinders off of their eyes so that they would see their own helplessness, hopelessness, and that you are the only answer. (laughs) What you did on the cross. Oh God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your patience with us. Lord, help us to walk in the truth. Help us to be obedient children. Lord, use us. May we realize, Lord, 
all the things that we are exposed to on a daily, weekly basis in many ways are not going to give us joy, is not going to ultimately give us happiness. Lord, I even think about as, as we're approaching the holiday season. Lord, and I've experienced this, something that I've wanted and I've longed for and I finally got it. It doesn't satisfy. I want something else. God, may we see that, that this is what brings happiness. This is what brings joy. Finding our joy and our satisfaction completely and totally in you. God, thank you for saving us. And thank you for being patient with us. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.